This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today and before news headlines at half past 12, an update for you on the long-running court action associated with the death of more than a 1,000 head of cattle on Yandy Yarra Reserve, which is about an hour's drive south of Port Hedland. We'll get to that shortly. Also, the State Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis responds to calls from the opposition to start crisis talks for the sheep industry, for sheep producers who are struggling with low livestock prices. That's shortly here on the Country Hour. It is six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Kicking off today with some grains industry news for you because the latest Grain Industry of Western Australia crop report has WA poised for a 15.5 million tonne harvest. Now that is down 1.5 million tonnes on the previous report just a month ago. The drop in grain yield production could have been worse if last week's significant cold front hadn't delivered all that rain across the state's agricultural region. Michael Lamont is the author of Giwa's Crop Report. Michael, how important was last week's rain? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that rain, Belinda, it, it's had a massive impact on certainly arresting the slide in grain yield potential for the dry areas in the north and central of the state in the low rainfall areas. Uh, it's, it's too late for a lot of, lot of crops, although crops that were still green and still hanging on, it's going to have a major impact. It's not a huge impact on yield. In some cases, there will be a yield kick of two, three, four hundred kilos per hectare, but it's going to have a major impact on grain quality. So where a lot of growers were looking at high screenings, they now won't have anywhere near the screenings that they were likely to have had. And this could have a big impact on profit due to the potential to get to higher segregation grades. So, yeah, and, and in, in, in the high, in the areas that were still okay, it's, it will have a yield kick and um, it will, you know, it will certainly improve the prospects of those crops. Yeah, so that rain was really just in the nick of time. And um, even though the light falls in, in a lot of the areas in the north, won't have a huge impact on yield. It will still have an impact for a lot of growers. So we're sitting at a you know a, a harvest that looks around about fifteen and a half million tons at this point. If that rain hadn't come through, what would we have been talking about today? Oh well, you know we would have already lost probably another half a million, or even you know it was really sliding. You know the potential was really going off. I mean, yeah, and it would just continue to over the next few weeks, Belinda. I mean, we could have you know we could have lost. I mean. Yeah, we would have lost another half million tonne probably since the rain if we hadn't had it. And the, with the warm weather coming up, that we would have lost more potential. So, um, and there's no rain on the horizon. I mean, it, it really, yeah, it, it would have started to, we would have really started to shed tonnes across the state if, um, if we didn't get that rain. And as you said, there's no rain on the forecast for the next week or so. In fact, next week, I mean, we're, we're in the mid-30s in some places. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's not unusual, of course. And the difference is this year that we haven't got the subsoil moisture to provide that buffer for the spring. And the crops are later, so they're still in those critical grain filling periods. So, 
the heat's not good, but it's yeah, it could have certainly a lot worse if we hadn't had that bit of a bit of rain and those that that cool weather for a week. Such a contrast to last year. What were we? Twenty six million tons last year, and at this point, fifteen and a half million tons. It's a it's a big difference, isn't it? Oh yeah, it is a big difference. But I mean, you know, fifteen million. If we do end up with fifteen million tons, it's still not a bad result. You know, we've only had we've only had eighteen million tons three times, and two of those were in the last two years. So you know, everyone, we're all still thinking it's always going to be like that. But of course, it's not. You know, it's not that long ago that fifteen million tons was a pretty good year. So I think considering the poor state of a lot of the crops in the northern ag zone, yeah, I mean, if we do end up with around 15, it's it's probably, I would still say, yeah, it's a big difference from, difference from last year and the previous year, although historic, in historical terms, it's not still not going to be too bad a year. So is this at 15.5 million tonnes, if the harvest gets to that, is that an average these days? <laughs> yeah, well... Well, yeah, okay. So in, in my crop report, you know, we're now talking about, and a lot of the agronomists and, well, everyone is now talking about historical average or recent average. You know, are we talking about a five-year average or a 10-year average? You know, so if you look at the five-year average, you know, our five-year average is up around 20 million tonne. And that's probably where we're heading. Although in historical averages, 10-year average, 15's, you know, pretty good. You know, it's up there, not as not as good as some of the years where we had 16, but it's certainly... You know, much higher than what we were getting 10, 15 years ago, which was more around that 10 million tonnes. So, you know, it's hard to talk about averages because the scene is changing so quickly. <clears throat> We've got more crop going in the ground. The uh, the production systems are just, you know, so so precise now that we'll be getting, you know, high tonnages even in these low rainfall years from now on. And then, you know, between now and harvest, the, even more pressure, I guess, on the crop at this point, especially with the heat coming. Well, the heat will have an impact, although, you know, we, we're still not out of the frost risk period, although the, the area that's probably still most at frost risk is that West Albany zone where the crops, you know, are still maturing. But the, for the rest of the state, it's, you know, if we do have warm weather for another couple of weeks, it's unlikely to, the frost will cause too much trouble. The heat will sort of keep a lid on the top end, although we sort of factor that in a bit anyway of, you know, with that 15, 15 and a half million tonnes. So I would say that 15 is pretty firm, really, at the moment. I mean, there's, if we have a really severe frost pretty well straight away, which doesn't look like at all, that could drop the tonnes quite a bit. Although I think the um, the 15 is actually, I think it's actually quite firm at the moment from what, you know, from what I can see in the next couple of weeks. Really good to get a, a, an update on the situation. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, good day, Belinda. Michael Lamond, he's the author of Giwa's Crop Report. And at this point in time, it does look like Western Australia heading for a 15.5 million tonne crop. 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour. WA Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis says she's called on Deep Herd and other agencies to explore what assistance might be useful for WA's sheep producers struggling with low livestock prices. Earlier in the week, the Nationals WA called on the state government to start crisis talks for the sheep industry. Minister Jarvis was asked if crisis talks were necessary. 
Look, I've instructed uh, Department of Primary Institutes and Regional Development to gather more local intel. They are, they are on the ground, they are talking to people, so I've had a numerous briefings from DPIRD. I've also asked the Rural Business Development Corporation, who look at schemes of assistance, to provide advice to me on what we can do to assist. Um, I do note that Tony Seabrook was on the radio today and, um, you know, sort of acknowledged that, that there is not a huge amount of levers that, that uh, the state government can do to assist farmers. What can be done to prevent thousands of sheep being shot in WA due to low sheep prices and high feed costs? So let me just be clear, the issue that we've got at the moment, the large numbers of overstocking are breeding ewes that are at the end of their useful reproductive life. Now, it is incredibly difficult, I understand, to actually get a, a higher price for those breeding ewes that might be five, six, seven, eight years old. Those breeding ewes have produced, you know, a number of lambs, maybe six or seven lambs in their lifetime, and the farmers have, have made a profit from that. It is incredibly difficult, though, to make a decision. So farmers are making a decision about those breeding ewes now that the price has dropped, about whether they fatten them up and send them to an abattoir if they can get a booking at an abattoir, because remember, there's not a huge market for that mutton. So farmers are making a commercial decision. Now, I accept that is incredibly difficult and some farmers may choose to shoot those older sheep just from an economic point of view. Um, I'm, I'm more concerned about what mental health support we, we have in place and I've actually directed deeper to, as a matter of urgency, look at what mental health support we're offering. I've also asked for on-the-ground feedback for other small businesses. So obviously we know the farming communities have had, have, have had a number of good years. It's really hard at the moment. There's some some dry spots across the state. We also have cropping farmers who may not get a crop this year. So I want to understand what's the financial burden that those farming families will feel, but I also want to understand what financial burden those small businesses in those regional communities might be feeling. And so Depot are working on that as a matter of urgency. And as I said, the Rural Business Development Corporation, who also look at these matters, I've also asked their board to look at this as a matter of urgency. Do you agree with the Premier that the current situation is not linked to the uncertainty industries facing due to the impending end of the live sheep trade? Look, more sheep went out by live export last last year than the previous year. Um, the sheep, the 60,000 sheep went out this week as far as I'm aware. So obviously the summer, the northern summer moratorium ended on the 15th of September. There were sheep going to port. I actually saw B-doubles full of sheep going to port on Saturday as I was driving up from my electorate to Perth. So the actual number of sheep going out by live export has actually increased in recent years. So it's hard to understand that farmers are saying that this is linked to a possible future end of live export. WA Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis with Ellie Honeybone. Now, the Minister was in Manjimup today to announce the recipients of the first round of community small grants to help transform WA's timber towns. Um, obviously following the government's decision to end native timber logging at the end of this year. In the first round, 27 recipients will share in $2 million from the fund. And in this round, the funding will help support the expansion of an edible snail-growing business in Manjimup, the expansion of a medical centre at Nanup, and the installation of public facilities at an outdoor community space in Greenbushes. 16 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. 
An update from the newsroom for you at half past 12 and then a good look at the weather right around Western Australia. First, though, there has been a development on the long-running court action associated with the death of more than 1,000 head of cattle on Yandayarra Reserve, an hour's drive south of Port Hedland. Richard Hudson has been following this story. Richard, what's the update? Well, basically, charges of animal cruelty have been dropped against individuals associated with these cattle deaths that happened back in January 2019. So you might remember it was a particularly hot and dry summer and the cattle died of thirst. So it all happened at Yandiara Reserve, which is run by its local community. It's got about 400 residents, and that's managed by the Mugarinya Community Association. So this week in the Perth Magistrates Court, 24 animal cruelty charges were dropped against eight board members from the Mugarinya Community Association Incorporated. But the community itself has changed its plea on animal cruelty charges to guilty. But, Belle, you requested an interview with Alana McTiernan, who was the Agriculture Minister at the time, didn't you? Yeah, I uh, got in touch with her this morning and she said she's happy the community has finally accepted responsibility but declined an offer to be interviewed. Alana McTiernan has told us on a number of occasions, though, that a lot of work went into reforming operations at Yandiara. So back in 2019, Alana McTiernan described the cattle deaths as a catastrophic failure of management. Well, Cole de Grusser is the opposition spokesperson for agriculture and food. Cole, firstly, what are your thoughts on the Mugarinya Community Association changing its plea to guilty? Well, it is good in one sense that um, that there is some ownership, I guess, of, of the problem that, that occurred. At the same time, we obviously don't know what the final outcome will be because it's still before the court. So it's pretty hard to, to say much more than that, although I guess you could say it is interesting that uh, that community association has changed its plea and the, the other charges have been dropped. Uh, why that's the case, we won't know, of course, until the outcome of that court case. Just on the charges that have been dropped, I mean, there are 24 charges against eight board members, individuals that have been dropped. What are your thoughts on that actual occurrence this week? Uh, again, interesting, but of course we still don't know the, the final outcome until we, till we get to the, uh, to the end of the case. But I guess the questions I have in my mind are about structures of, uh, of businesses or of business entities and whether there's something in that that we'll learn from this for business structures for other pastoral operations or other uh, you know agricultural operations as well. Again, too early to say really until we see the outcome of the uh, of the court case. What are your thoughts on the length of time it's taken to get this Yandiara case settled? Well, that's probably the most uh, extraordinary thing in this whole in this whole affair. Um, it, uh, obviously, what happened happened very quickly and caused a lot of uh, unnecessary suffering for animals. But at the same time, it's taken what four years, over four years, nearly nearly five years, in fact. Four years and eight months. Four years and eight months to get to this to get to this point. That is just too long, in my view. I don't know why that is. Again, we probably won't find all of that out until the end of the court case. But really. You would think in an effort to prevent these things from happening, again, you would want an outcome as quickly as possible. At the time, hundreds of cattle died of thirst and then 760 had to be put down. You'd have to think most suffered terribly. Has enough been done to prevent this sort of thing happening again in future? Well, that's a good question. I mean, if this kind of incident occurred on a live export vessel, for example, 
that would be have huge implications for that industry. So I don't know why it's taken so long, or, or why um, you know, or whether in fact the outcome will change anything. I hope it does because these sorts of incidents just shouldn't happen regardless of where they happen. The government has been talking, well, since Alana McTiernan was Agriculture Minister, this government's been talking about new animal welfare legislation. We still haven't seen that. Uh, we keep getting told it's this year, it's this year and so on, and that's been, cans being kicked down the road. Will that legislation have made any difference? Don't know, because we haven't seen it. Um, but I'm, I just hope that we can learn from the outcome of this case to work out uh, new ways to approach you know, this sort of incident so that we just don't see this thing this sort of thing happen again. It really is amazing that it can occur in the, in the modern day. Uh, you know, Australian agriculture is, is very good at what it does. And as a former livestock producer, I can tell you it's, uh, it's horrifying uh, to think that that many animals uh, died. The fact that this case hasn't been fully wrapped up, it is still going to court later this year in November for the charges being laid against the Mugarinya community itself. But uh, thanks for your time in the country out today. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. Colin DeGrasse, who's the Shadow Minister for Agriculture, speaking to Richard Hudson. 21 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Is Australia prepared for a real lumpy skin disease outbreak? Well, the answer's probably not, partly because Australia currently has no vaccine bank to combat a real outbreak of LSD. This is even after the recent cattle trade suspension imposed by Indonesia, which was based on accusations some cattle imported from Australia had the disease. Australia doesn't have lumpy skin disease and never has. Indonesia has now lifted the suspension. A recent Parliamentary Committee biosecurity report recommends the federal government should establish a vaccine bank for use in the event of a real LSD incursion. But Chair of Cattle Australia David Foote thinks that's unnecessary. There are some limitations and challenges with a bank of vaccine. The main limitation being shelf life. My understanding is that the shelf life of these vaccines, which are commercially available, through the major manufacturing companies of which many producers purchase other goods from now. So this is not like the FMD vaccine, which has to be typed over in Perbright in the UK, then formulated to respond to the strain of FMD that's here. These products in the main, which is the needling strain, is what we're looking at with FMD, are available effectively off the shelf from major global manufacturers. Having said that, though, there is still a timeline requirement. I mean, if it's urgent, urgent will still take probably seven days to get the first run of vaccines into the country. And if you're looking for something like half a million doses, which is still a significant amount of, of vaccine, it will probably have a six to eight week lead time, given that you can break into the production schedules of those major manufacturers who are making this on a daily basis for others. So the challenge with is having a bank, whether it be 500,000 or a million doses, where that vaccine expires in 18 months is really not a bank, or it's a huge expense to have to rotate that bank in and out to stay current. So that's one of the challenges. And whilst it sounds really good to say, yes, we can just knock on the door and, and get it out, we have to understand we've also got to muster those cattle if we're going to do it to meet the time frame. So probably their time frames are no less, no slower 
then maybe our time frame is to present cattle in the event we need to. Are those time frames acknowledging that we still don't have a an emergency use permit and an import permit for any vaccine candidate for lumpy skin disease? I'm unaware as to where it's up to with an emergency permit because obviously there is vaccine being brought into uh, the Geelong laboratory facility for government to work on back, which was brought in under the emergency permit back in March or where it was earlier this year. I mean, there, and there is a small amount of vaccine that's actually been held or accessible to government. So it's not answering your question, I know, but I don't think that that will be the barrier to gaining vaccines if in hopefully the unlikely event we need it. David Foote, who's Chair of Cattle Australia, speaking to Alice Marshall. 25 past 12. The Federal Department of Agriculture says it's identified a suitable manufacturer to supply LSD vaccines to Australia if they're needed. The Australian Chief Veterinary Officer has applied for an emergency use permit and import permit for this product, and these are currently being assessed. And the department is in discussions with Animal Health Australia to investigate the possible establishment of a national LSD vaccine bank. But even if we can access vaccines relatively quickly, North Queensland vet Campbell Costello doesn't think Australia is properly prepared for a lumpy skin disease outbreak. Look, it's been a tumultuous five weeks uh, period. Uh, I think I speak for a lot of veterinarians um, and alumni that, uh, yeah, we, I, we sort of felt like we were left in the lurch there a little bit. You know, I, I know that, uh, you know, our state departments and governing bodies have a lot of due diligence uh, to do regarding biosecurity. And, you know, obviously uh, when multi-billion dollar trade uh, deals are on the table, they have to um, keep things in-house. But we, we had a fluster of uh, phone calls to regional clinics, ones that I work at around the country, as well as my, my brethren. And we really didn't uh, know what to say or what to do. I think there is a little bit of uh, underwhelming feeling within the veterinary uh, community as to, well, what is our role? What is our investment and our roles preventing this uh, from happening? Uh, And what does day one on um, an EAD, you know, exotic animal disease outbreak look like? Day two, day three... Uh, and day four. So, um, yeah, there's still a bit of confusion and um, you and some of the listeners reside in Townsville and we hear the military action, you know, quite active at the moment as we train for possible threats. I just feel that we're not match fit and doing the same in the veterinary and biosecurity field to go, you know, God help us if war day ever breaks out in a biosecurity sense. Have have we done our training and are we prepared? So, in your opinion, if we were to find some cattle with lumpy skin disease tomorrow and needed to contain that and essentially ensure that it doesn't spread across Australia. Is the industry ready? Oh, I, I, I don't think so when we speak on behalf of private vets. You know, I, I'm a pilot and a, and a veterinarian and I love servicing uh, regional Queensland. I have not been told uh, you know, what my remunerations would be for, for situations like this. I feel like I'm not fully utilised to get out and about, as do many other other veterinarians. You know, we do have a program in Australia called MABSNET, Northern Australia Biosecurity Network. Um, but, you know, f- for a disease 
investigation, for example, we're only, uh, there's a stipend of $2,000. So, you know, I think if we're going to be getting out and about looking for diseases within a, a, a very close radius to um, a clinic or where a vet's based, we may be able to pick up disease before it's a problem. You know, let's remember early detection um, is going to be what saves our butt uh, in the future and hopefully mitigates a massive loss of livestock and money. But when we're going out and about, you know, those those kind of prices uh, and, and remunerations and incentives, you know, they're not going to cover um, someone like myself getting out and about in regional Queensland, uh, Northern Territory, et cetera, et cetera. You know, for me on an aeroplane, um, it works out at about $1.70, $1.80 a kilometre, $400 an hour to fly on a plane. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm only given no uh, remunerations or very little, it's really going to leave some holes in the areas um, uh, that may be at risk of getting a disease incursion occurring. You know, let's not forget that our brethren in the medical field, uh, you know, the Royal Flying Doctor, for them to run a Pilatus PC-12 in the bush is $10,000 an hour. So, you know, we fund those kind of initiatives. Uh, I think the veterinary industry is a lot cheaper and our return on investment preventing or picking up these diseases early is absolutely paramount. And not only that, um, to prove to our overseas trade partners and stakeholders that we are free of it. If there was ever a question asked about, have we got lumpy skin disease? We are worried about animals that have come in. We could say we've had doctors such and such in that area with a negative um, laboratory result. You know, we can continually prove that it's not here as well. Dr Campbell Costello, a veterinarian for Outback and Airborne Vet Services, speaking to Lucy Cooper. You can read more on this story. It's online for you now. Just search ABC Rural and Lumpy Skin Disease. And just before the headlines, I wanted to let you know that the operator of a piggery near Mandra, so just south of Perth, has been fined more than $10,000 for incorrect storage of sludge from an on-site wastewater ponds. Derby Industries Proprietary Limited is the owner of the piggery known as CM Farms and the charges were laid after officers from the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation noticed sludge stockpiles from two wastewater ponds had no visible hard stand or liner under them. So this week the company was fined $10,000 and ordered to pay $788.33 in costs. The maximum penalty for contravening licence conditions under the Environmental Protection Act is a fine of $125,000. 29 to 1, Ali Colvin in the studio with the news headlines. Thanks, Belinda. Rio Tinto's head of iron ore operations says the company is trying to determine how it damaged an ancient rock shelter during a blast at one of its WA mines. A shrub and a boulder were dislodged in the blast last month at Namaldi, roughly 60 kilometres northwest of Tom Price. The area's traditional owners say they'll wait to assess the full damage but have expressed their disappointment with the mining giant. A Perth financial advisor who stole more than a million dollars from the superannuation accounts of eight clients has been sentenced to five years jail. 42-year-old Mark Raymond Sebo was found guilty by a district court jury of 36 stealing offences committed over 10 days in July 2019. The court was told Sebo used the money for online gambling.
The federal government's announced the nation's budget is in surplus for the first time in 15 years. The final budget outcome figures for the 2022-23 financial year reveal a surplus of more than $22 billion. The windfall's been driven in part by high commodity prices, but the government says it's also down to responsible economic management. Thanks, Belinda. More news at one. Ellie, thank you for the update. Appreciate that. 28 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Just before the news at 1, as always on a Friday, well, when the market's on, that is, Danny Burkett along with the details of the wool market. And it is down a little bit in the east and down a little bit more here in the west. Danny will go through those details for you shortly. And also, pretty exciting news in the shearing world in Western Australia this week. A shearing record. Uh, it occurred on, was it, I think it was Monday. I think it was all day Monday. And yes, the record was broken. You'll meet the person who did it just before the news at one o'clock. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Angeline Prasad. And Ange, how's it looking around the southwest land division? Good afternoon, Belinda. Well, we had some uh, cloud this morning, but it's all contracting to the east. We have got a west coast trough that's moving inland uh, across the southwest land division. And the the cloud is contracting east with it. Uh, however, we can still expect to some very light showers across the uh, eastern parts of the southwest land division for the remainder of today. Uh, so through the eastern parts of the central reed belt, uh, the great southern and into the Esperance region. There's also a risk of um, of uh, of uh, thunderstorms through the through this area uh, this afternoon. Um, just a chance, um, but that risk of dry lightning is. Is, is there. I'm not expecting much rainfall uh, with the, with these showers of thunderstorms, um, less than 0.5 millimetres. Uh, that cloud band is extending into the gold fields, Eucla and interior, and it is producing very isolated uh, thunderstorms through those areas as well. Quite warm today across uh, the southwest land division. Temperatures generally about... Uh, 8 to 10 degrees above average for this time of the year. So uh, a little bit more warming as that cloud uh, contacts east and we get sunny conditions this afternoon. And then is there any rain at all for next week in the Southwest Land Division, Ange? How's it looking? Well, um, the weekend is a bit of a mixed bag. We're heading into the long weekend. Tomorrow we do see a, a weak uh, cold front brush past the southwest coast. However, ahead of this cold front, it's going to be cloudy and a bit drizzly as well through the western parts of the southwest land division. So west of about um, uh, York, uh, um, northern uh through the lower west, southwest, it's going to be cloudy and drizzly, but again, not much rain. I'm expecting, uh, gosh, uh, less than 0.5. Maybe we'll see up to a millimetre along the coast, but suddenly through the uh, agricultural areas tomorrow, some of that cloud will extend through the central parts, through parts of the um, central weed belt and, and Great Southern, but again, it'll be uh, less than 0.5 millimetres. So, some very light l- rainfall t- tomorrow. Uh, it does contract uh, into the southern regions on Sunday. But yeah, next week is looking uh, rather dry, Belinda. Um, we have got a, a, a West Coast trough that redevelops very quickly um, from Monday onwards. And that becomes the dominant weather pattern for much of next week where we'll see widespread warming uh, across the southwest land division. In fact, we may see record heat by the middle of the week. 
All right. Well, let's look into northern and eastern parts. What's the story? Well, uh, that West Coast trough that's moving inland is producing isolated showers and the odd thunderstorms through the gold fields, Eucla and interior. And that's likely to persist throughout this weekend. It's going to be mostly high base, so very little rainfall. Uh, but some parts, especially through the uh, southeastern parts of the gold fields, Eucla and southern parts of the south interior may see a few millimetres, maybe up to three millimetres isolated, about four to five millimetres. Now across uh, the north of the state, it is also heating up there. We're looking at temperatures hitting uh, either 40 or, or above 40 across um, many parts of the Kimberley and the northern parts of the Pilbara. So uh, it's going to be a sweltering weekend across the north. I'm not expecting any rain in the north. So dry conditions, but certainly a lot of heat building across the north uh, this long weekend. And then back to this afternoon, any warnings? So we don't have any warnings uh, for land areas today. However, um, looks like we will see some strong winds across our coastal waters uh, for Saturday. Great. Thanks, Ange. Appreciate that. 23 to 1. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been no rain over 5 millimetres anywhere across the state. Now, early in the hour, you got an update on, well, a long-running court action that's associated with the death of more than 1,000 head of cattle on Yandiyarra Reserve. So that's about an hour's drive south of Port Hedland. And the update is that this week in the Perth Magistrates Court, 24 animal cruelty charges have been dropped against eight board members from the Mugarinya Community Association Incorporated. But the community itself has changed its plea on animal cruelty charges to guilty. In response to that on the text, 0448 922604, Robin Busselton says... This court case involving more than a 1,000 cattle dying of thirst and the board members responsible for being let off is nothing less than absolutely pathetic. If this number of cattle died during shipment or with any other farmer for that matter, there would have been massive consequences. There seems to be no accountability here. This too from Ray in East Pingley. The Pilbara cattle deaths is a disgrace and one wonders where were Animals Australia? RSPCA and other welfare activists. As for halting live sheep export, there is a lot of hypocrisy when making comparisons. The text is 0448 922604. 21 to 1. Well, it sounds like some mining companies might be taking environment, social and governance reporting seriously. In other words, not just treating it like a box-ticking exercise. Junior miner Liontown Resources claims to have completed three ESG reports for a lithium project and mining is actually yet to start. Its Kathleen Valley project is just north of Leinster, about 680 kilometres northeast of Perth, and it could end up as one of the world's biggest lithium mines. But Liontown's sustainability manager, Claire Wilson, says they'll only be there for a relatively short amount of time. So they want to make sure they do things the right way from the start for the local community and the environment. I go out on almost all the cultural heritage surveys that have been had um, this past year and towards the end of last year. And that's building that constant face and that level of 
of engagement from, I guess, a senior person within Liontown is really important to Joelle. Um, Tony, our CEO, attends their board meetings and things like that. So in doing that, when it comes to the project and operations, if there is an issue or anything like that, we can have those open conversations. When it comes to culture, for example, um, we had all the approvals in place uh, for our pit. We had a Section 18. We had a cultural heritage management plan that covered the development area. And we went out on and we did a survey last year and this particular area to the corner of our pit was identified as being, oh, we don't think you guys should go in there. And so we started the conversation of going, well, is this or isn't this a site? And it got to be the point that we had an additional three surveys to look at this area. And it turned out um, that this site wasn't picked up in the way that it should have been picked up at the beginning of all of our surveys. Um, And it actually extends further south from our project and into a different um, group. And so we had, I think there was about seven Wadi men out on site looking at this site. And um, in the end, we basically said, yep, no problems, we will protect this area and we'll exclude it from operations. And what that meant is we had to redesign our pit, Uh, we had to change a bunch of things around, but what it meant to Jawal was that we've protected culture. And if we learn from our predecessors, I guess, you know, you look at, we had all the approvals in place, everything was ready to go. If we'd had a push forward, then, you know, we would have been no better than, you know, the likes of Duke and Gorge. Now, while this site doesn't have you know, art and all of those things. It's very deep. This site was very deep to them. Um, And I think, you know, we could have done it legally, but we did not because of the social implications. And this is a 23-year project. This site had been around for millions of years. Who am I to put a value on this site and go for it? And, um, yeah, so that that was a huge huge piece and I think there is at times some frustration within the organisation we need to mine and all of those conversations were had but ultimately you know everybody from the mining engineers on the ground up through to our board were very supportive of just taking it slow and making sure we did it right. I guess Claire when we have a look at broadening out the lens from a legal perspective and particularly around governance from an ESG perspective and looking at the G what kind of macro-level things have the leadership and the board done at Lion Town that you can say that's a milestone we've achieved? And what else are you looking to achieve in the next financial year? Lion Town, so we, we started construction in uh, October last year. We started a ground, ground disturbance. Um, and in that time, so between now, we're about to release our third ESG report. Um, we haven't even started operations or production yet. Um, <laughs> So if anyone has ever pulled together an ESG report, you will know the amount of work that goes into those. And I think that's something that we're very proud of. And there's a lot of, um, you know, information and uh, transparency that goes into these reports to put everything on the table. We took an early adoption of ESG for that exact reason, is that we have nothing to hide. Here it is. So we're very proud of that. In terms of moving forward... um, Goodness me, I don't even know where to start. We've just developed our ESG strategy, which includes a huge amount of work and focus on native title and working with community and how we are going to add benefit. Because everything that's been talked about here, how we're going to add benefit. We're incredibly excited that we've just employed our um, Aboriginal and community lead. And you know, his sole focus is to go out into community and talk to people and then bring that back and then we can, you know, we can work on those things. So... We're, we're early, we're juniors, you know, we're, we're punting in a big swimming pool and I think 
if there's any other junior miners in here today, like there is absolutely nothing stopping you from adopting early and working towards best practice from the get-go. So it's easier to start that way. Easy, 100% easier and to start. Yep. business. 100%. Exactly yep. right. Liontown Resources Sustainability Manager Claire Wilson talking to MC Kate Hartness at this week's Future of Mining conference held in Perth. The Kathleen Valley Lithium Project is about 60 kilometres north of Leinster and 680 kilometres northeast of Perth. If everything goes according to plan, production will start in the middle of next year. 16 to 1. Now, if you're a farmer struggling to find staff, you might have already started looking in some pretty unconventional places for workers just to keep your business ticking over. But I wonder if you've thought about heading off to the local prison because that's what the dairy sector is being encouraged to consider to ease the skills shortage. For decades, a Carnet prison farm near Serpentine has been training inmates how to run the dairy that supplies milk to all prisons. And while the employment opportunities could help industry, prison farm dairy officer Adam Gregory says the program also helps with prisoners' personal development. A lot of guys have come here that haven't had any experience with cattle or pretty much farming at all. They come in, they're apprehensive, and within a week they either love it or they hate it. The majority of them absolutely love it, and yeah, I think it makes them into better people. They seem to genuinely love the cattle and form a bond. How nice is that to see? Oh, it, it is fantastic. We've got guys that rear them from calves, and if they're here for more than a couple of years... They then see the calf become a heifer and then later on come into the milking herd and they get a real buzz out of watching their calf become a cow. And they do it all, they go from right from the milking right to the packing and everything, is that right? Yes, yeah, they do the whole lot. But we milk and package or pasteurise and then package everything that is produced on site. What's the number one thing that you try to teach them? I believe just uh, animal welfare. If you're good to the cows, the cows will be good to us as far as production goes. Carnot Prison Farm Dairy Officer Adam Gregory speaking to Jackie Lynch. You can read more on that story. Just search ABC Prison Dairy for the online story. 14 to 1. Well, tens of thousands of people flock to Henty Machinery Field Days in New South Wales at this time of year just to look at the tractors. And this year... There was a star attraction. Five very rare vintage Upton MT855 tractors were on display. And they were designed and manufactured in Corowat, New South Wales, in the 1970s. Only eight got built before manufacturing stopped in 1980. And they're still regarded as the world's biggest factory-built two-wheel drive tractors. Carl Upton. Um, I'm the design engineer that uh, designed these MT855s and the, the big HT14350. And it still is the world's biggest factory produced two wheel drive tractor. This is a history making event for us because there's five tractors here that uh, no more than two tractors have ever appeared anywhere at any one time. So this is the first time we've had a multiple group and their owners 
and um, it's just uh, been an enormous buzz for us to have the old guys come who were very interested in tractors of the day and knew all about them from the word go. So, And what makes this tractor, tractor special? Well, the makeup of it, it's a what we call a component-built tractor. You see, most modern tractors, the companies make the engines, transmissions and the, and the tractor. But we just, I wanted to build a big-framed tractor that could be, uh, you'd just buy the components in, most of these components in this tractor come from the trucking industry in the day, except the, the drive axles at the back. They were from um, uh, industrial earth-moving machines. And they're very, very rare to come by now. As, we, as you've mentioned before, you, you've never seen five all together no, in the same no, place. No. When was the last Upton tractor built? In 1980. It was built in 1980 and it was sold to a gentleman at Dirrambandi in Queensland that's up near St George and now my son purchased it back about two years ago and it's just awaiting reconstruction <laughs> we, it's, it's in a bit of a bad state, it's been worked so hard it just needs to be rebuilt like, like these At the Henty Machinery Field Days there's a lot of big tractors around here today mm-hmm. what do you make of modern tractors? Well, they're way too complicated, um, and I don't know. The sophistication in them is just beyond belief, and I looked at a few of them, and I would just think there is no way we could build anything like that. They're just, and the computerisation in them is not in... A lot of farmers are not in favour of that, and we've actually been approached to build tractors by a group in Queensland basically to reproduce these sorts of tractors with no computer systems. That mind GP, sorry, GPS guidance, um, that's alright, but not all the computerisation. Why do you think that is? Because the computerisation of the systems in the tractor it can fail because of dust, for example, and I've, I have heard occasions where it, all it needed was a $40 part and it's cost the owner $4,000 to fix. Just ridiculous. Simple is better. Mm. Carl Upton, he's a designer and manufacturer of Upton Tractors, speaking to Annie Brown at the Henty Machinery Field Days on in New South Wales. Ten minutes to one. This week on Landline, the rain-fed rice of northern New South Wales. Big groups like Mars Foods and Kellogg's are all out there trying to find low-emission rice to suit what they are trying to do. We have something that fits that mould, but we can't do anything about it. And the Mount Isa Rodeo. All of the best in Australia turns up. It's hard to win a cheque. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Nine minutes to one. Shortly, Danny Burkett along. He's going to go through the wool market, which is down a little bit this week. The eastern market indicator down four cents, and it went down further here in the west. The western market indicator down 27 cents. Danny, with the details very shortly for you. First, though, after a gruelling eight-hour day in the shed, the shearing record for merino lambs was broken this week in Williams 
170 kilometres southeast of Perth. 24-year-old Ethan Harder from Bruce Rock shore 624 lambs in front of a huge crowd of spectators and a panel of international judges. It wasn't all smooth sailing, though. In the late stages of the day, Ethan had a knee injury. So he's feeling a lot better after he's had a few days rest. Yeah, pretty pretty good now. After a couple of days of um, yeah, rehab up in Perth and sort of got my knee looked at and, yeah, feeling pretty good now. Starting to set in now, so, yeah, starting to relax with the family again and, yeah, kick back. Tell us what exactly was the record? What was your number and, and what type of record and what type of sheep were you shearing? Uh, we went for the eight-hour Merino lamb record. It was held by um, Cullen Black. Uh, he broke it about, I think it was 11 months ago, um, down in Cajunup. He shore uh, 604. Um, and before that, it was held by Dwayne Black for um, 18 years, 570, I believe. Yeah, we, we got through um, 624 um, on the 18th. So, yeah, not a bad day out, I guess. So an eight-hour period, and you had um, you had judges there, I believe. Some of them were from other countries even? Yeah, we had um, two judges from Australia. They both came over from um, Eastern States, and then one judge came over from the UK. So, yeah, everyone, everyone sort of travelled. Half my team travelled from all around Australia and New Zealand as well, so... Talk us through your training for this, Ethan. Like, what what went into how long you've been training for, and what went into getting this this record done in eight hours. Um, this one was sort of a like bit of equivalent of about twelve months training and setting up. I think uh, probably got a bit intense over the last sort of six months. I went to New Zealand and did a stint over there, and then um, did a um, trip over to Wales as well. Did a bit of shearing over there just for the Australian team, and then. Um, and then, yeah, come back, I sort of, um, yeah, spent a lot of time on the legs and a lot of time in cardio. But, um, yeah, it was just a, just a whole bunch of mental activity as well. So there was sort of um, getting getting ready for that, go through the eight-hour day. So it was sort of, sort of pretty easy at the end of the day. It all worked out pretty well. I actually attempted the eight-hour Merino U record about four years ago now. And, yeah, I sort of spent a lot of time just evaluating myself and what I did right and what I did wrong. Gave my body a little bit of time to mature and and then, yeah, sort of um, just didn't want to rush into it too much. So I gave myself enough time to evaluate everything and had a really strong team behind me this time. So that sort of helped me out along the way. And, and yeah, sort of just, just feels good to yeah get in the books finally. Speaking of team, I believe there was – Lots of people there watching, 150 spectators or something. How does it help having having that many people in the shed? Oh, it was pretty, yeah, pretty awesome. Had sort of um, a lot, a lot of people come out to help me out, and a lot of people come to just support as well. So, yeah, sort of <clears throat> when things got hard throughout the day, it was, uh, it was never really a quitting on the mind or anything like that. It was. Um, it was just, uh, yeah, just keep going because everyone was there to support. And, and yeah, my whole team sort of came out and, yeah, represented themselves and, and me as well. So, yeah, it was pretty awesome. They, I grew up in a shearing family, so when everyone was going to school, I was out in the sheds and learning how to shear. So that was, yeah, one of my little dreams when I was a kid was to grow up and 
be the best year in the world. So, yeah, I'm sort of trying to stay on that path now and still a long way to go, but you never know, maybe one day we might get there. Bruce Rock Shearer, Ethan Harder, speaking about the Merino lamb shearing record he broke earlier in the week in front of about 150 spectators. And the record, the official record now, is 624 lambs in eight hours. So well done, Ethan. Four minutes to one here on the Country Hour, and it's time to take a look at the wool market, which dropped a little bit this week. The Eastern Market Indicator is down four cents to close at 1,144 cents a kilogram clean, and the Western Market Indicator is down 27 cents to finish the week on 1,272 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what's the story? Yeah, we had a good two days pretty much through Sydney and Melbourne, but on the last day in Fremantle on the Wednesday, the market did fall away. In Fremantle, 18 microns fell 50 clean, closing at 1480. 19 closed at 1400, that was off 40. 20 microns, 1305 on the close, that was off 45. 21s, only off 25, closing at 1275. 22s off 15, closing at 1245. As I said, I'd suggest the majority of that bull came late on day two in Fremantle. Pieces and bellies across the board. Regardless of VM remain fully firm, that's always a very good sign for the market because the two combing markets, uh, when they start to diverge from each other, it's always a sign that something's going to happen. So the price points between pieces and fleece have narrowed. Uh, that differential in price sits roughly at about a dollar. Historically, that is fairly low. So again, that's a good sign for the market, in particular for the fleece wool. Locks up 30 on top of last week. Great result. Crutchings and stains also up 20. Lambs, again this week, very strong, firm to deer up. And as I said last week, any lambs uh, you have at the moment, get them into the market because this is the time of the year that you'll experience the best market for those types. Daddy, who was buying this week? We had uh, Techwool back in the market this, this week and I'd suggest they roughly had about $9 million uh, in capital out in the market. And considering that we traded $50 million out of Australia from, uh, for the wool this week, so 20% of that was driven by one company. They were the largest buyer in Merino fleece wool. PJ Morris, 13%. Endeavour Wool Exports, 12%. And TNU, who were missing last week, came back in as the fourth largest buyer. Tech Wool, largest buyer in the cross wool. Tech Wool, largest buyer in the skirtings. And Tech Wool, fourth largest buyer in the augments. So as I said, they had a fair amount of capital sitting out in the marketplace this week. Interesting point. We have cleared so far this year $463 million worth of wool out of Australia. That is $55 million shy of where we were this time last year. That is just simply a reflection of the wool market. In Fremantle this week, 20% of the Merino fleece wool were passed in. Again, that was on majority on the second day. Across the nation, a whole passed in rate of 10%, withdrawn 3%. So roughly 15% of the wools that were offered into the market didn't get cleared. 42,500 offered, just shy of 38,000 cleared. And what's going to be happening next week? So 40,500 bales on offer, Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle. Because of the long weekend, Fremantle will be a Wednesday, Thursday sale. Sydney is a designated super fine sale. They have 13,500 bales on offer. So they'll have a limited amount of merino top making wool. We have Melbourne, 20,000 bales. They have a roughly one quarter of their offering, if they stay true to form, will be crossbred wool. 
So that leaves Fremantle just shy of 7,000 bales with um, the centre of the universe for top making wolves going into next week. If we can keep the exchange rate sitting around that 64, 63 and a half where it's been, um, I think it bodes well going into next week with that lower volume of merino top making wolves. Thank you so much, Danny. On the ABC, time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.